Good morning, brothers and sisters. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Luke Schmelzer, and I'm the church planter and elder candidate at Shepherd Reformed Baptist Church, the church plant that Covenant is supporting in Joliet. As we begin our, our sermon today, uh, let us begin by reading God's Word. So if you would have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We'll be focusing today on Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As far as the reading of God's holy inspired word, would you please join with me for a moment of prayer? We thank you, O gracious God, for the gift of your word to us, a sure and steadfast and reliable guide inspired by your spirit, that as Jesus prayed that you would sanctify us by your truth, your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would all give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truths that we will study today. And help me as the speaker to speak what is faithful and true to your word. May the words of my mouth and the testimony of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So at Shepherd, in the last several months, we've been going through a, a study in the Apostles' Creed, which is that ancient summary of the Christian faith, those essential doctrines. We've been going through it in a more topical manner to study those essential ideas that make up our faith as Christians. You know, our conviction, the same as yours, is that ordinarily we would go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but it's helpful at times to focus specifically uncertain core truths and practices. And so we've gone through our series. We've studied what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, that I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to hell, and the third day, rose again from the dead, and now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We study this today, considering this from Acts chapter 1, seeing that how we see Christ ascended and seated to intercede for us and someday returning should draw us to glorify him and to trust him for our present comfort and our hope for the future. So let's look back through these verses in Acts chapter 1. We want to derive our doctrine and practice from Scripture itself. And so again, verses 
6 through, uh, well, let's look first, sorry, at the, the verses preceding, just for the sake of context. So Acts 1, verses 1 through 5. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them to, during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Christ, after his righteous life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection, now spends these weeks with his disciples, interpreting the scriptures in light of his work and ministry, and teaching them about the nature of the kingdom and what was to come next. So then in verses 6 through 8, again, the disciples come to him and ask, Lord, is now the hour you're going to restore the kingdom to us? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, that you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus comes with his disciples, and they gather together, and they come to Jesus, and they ask him a question, as they had many times before. Sometimes you see them kind of gathering together to answer a question that they're not exactly sure of. They're maybe, maybe a little scared of how he's going to respond, so they come all together, maybe it's safety in numbers. They come and ask him, Lord, is now the time of the restoration? You've, you've come and you've spoken to us about the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, and how you yourself are the, the royal king, the son of David. So now you've conquered death. Surely it's time for you to conquer the Romans and give us our land back. We see the problem in their question that though Jesus has taught them much about the nature of his kingdom in this age, though he has taught through many parables and through his interpreting to them the Old Testament prophecies and types and shadows concerning himself and and the nature of his ministry in this present age, they still don't quite get it. We see that kind of as a recurring theme through the Gospels. Jesus will say something very clearly and straightforward like, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and then raised from the dead. And they say, I wonder what this could mean. And, but we shouldn't be too hard on them because we should be honest as well of, of how slow we are to believe at times. That sometimes how plain and clear God's word to us may be, we still are sometimes dull of hearing and slow to believe and to obey. But we realize the, the way that their question misses the mark and that they are still seeking an earthly kingdom to be restored to them in this age. That they, they thought, surely now that Jesus has risen from the dead, now that he's declared his power and authority, now that he's defeated death itself, now surely is the time of the restoration. What the disciples would have been taught to look for all of their lives. In the first century, under Roman persecution and occupation, they would have spent all of their lives looking for the Messiah, 
the divine king, the son of David, who would come and muster up the armies of Israel and cast out these Roman oppressors and rule on the throne of David and sanctify the temple at Israel. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were expecting. But Jesus, through the gospel, continues to reaffirm to them that this is not the nature of the kingdom he has come to establish in this age. He says even that you can tear the temple down and he'll build a better one in three days. He comes to tell them things like, my kingdom is not of this world. They're still seeking to be like new Joshua's, seeking to be conquerors, seeking to take a land back for themselves and establish a geopolitical nation. But this is not the language, this is not the way that Jesus had taught them to be. The language of the New Testament, the pattern that it sets for us in this time between the first and second comings of Christ is not to be new Joshua's, to conquer the land, to to set up earthly kingdoms, but rather the language of witness, sojourn, exile, pilgrim. It's language a lot more like Abraham, who wandered in a land that was not his own, seeking a heavenly city, whose builder and architect was God himself. To be like Daniel in exile, seeking to work for the good of the nations around him, yet always having his utmost authority be God and his kingdom. And to be like the prophets who continued to speak the truths of God and his word despite uh, the oppression of the nations around them. To be strangers and sojourners did not negate their responsibility to seek justice according to God's standards, nor did it blunt the prophetic edge of God's people. But it did keep them from trying to set up the kind of kingdom that God had not promised to build. They were still seeking this earthly kingdom with an earthly temple. And it's not the kingdom that Jesus had come in this age to build. We, have, we see even that, that the, the basis of their question is wrong. Lord, is now the time? is now the fulfillment, is now the culmination of all things. They're they're desiring to know times and seasons that is not for them to know. It is not for them to know the times that have been fixed by the Father and His authority. And again, this is a temptation that we all have, a desire to peek behind the curtain, to, to look ahead to the next chapter, to skip to the end of the series and see how it all ends, to know how long, when, and how. But we know from God's word that it's not ultimately for us to know every detail of his plan. That he has revealed great and many truths to us, more than enough to keep us busy. And those are for us to focus on. John Calvin comments on this passage, we see this fault in their whole question, namely that they desire to know those things which are not right for them to know. Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord, but what he has revealed belongs to us and to our children to keep and to obey. That it is for us to know, believe, and to obey what God has revealed to us and to teach that to others. It's not for us to try and pry into the secret and hidden will of God, but rather to trust him with the things that he has yet hidden from us. And even as an example of this, the way that we can faithfully trust him. Last week when I preached this sermon, the examples that I gave 
I don't know when he's going to give us a building or exactly when we'll constitute as a new church or exactly when he's going to give us a home to live in. And we signed a lease on Friday. God is abundantly faithful. He hears our prayers. He is worth trusting with the things that we don't have control over. But coming back to our text, he says, it's not for you to know the whole plan, but I will tell you what comes next. That they will receive power when the Holy Spirit of God descends upon them. They will receive power to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. They will receive the power of God on high dwelling within them, not to be generals and commanders and soldiers, but to be witnesses. They will receive boldness and signs and wonders and prophetic authority for the sake of witnessing to the truth of the message which they proclaim. That signs and wonders are how God attests to His divine message and His divine messengers. They are meant to be His witnesses and His evangelists. John Gill, the old Baptist pastor, comments that they were to be the witnesses of the person of Christ, His deity and sonship, His incarnation and ministry, His miracles, His suffering and death, His resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven. This was to be their work and what belonged to them, not to inquire about temporal kingdoms and the setting them up and the times and seasons of them, but this is their business, to testify of the sufferings of Christ, the glory that followed, and to preach a crucified Jesus as the only Savior of lost sinners. And such must be our business as well. We see this played out through the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. And we see then, as Jesus had given them these last words and instructions to them, that he is taken up into heaven and that he gives them a promise that he shall one day return. Verses 9 through 11, let's examine those again. When he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. They were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stand, stood with white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you to heaven will come from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. Jesus begins to ascend in the glorious climax of his exaltation as the victorious divine son. We see this as the culmination of his, his being raised up in glory, having fulfilled his mission as the second Adam. That Jesus is lifted up, and, and how exactly that looks, how exactly that works, is something that's, I think, beyond our understanding and speculation. How does he, how does he arise into the air and transport to heaven? I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe that to you. But it is interesting to see the way that, that this language connects to various other portions of Scripture, like, like the role of the cloud in hiding Jesus as He is taken up into glory. We see the cloud also at His transfiguration. Jesus in Matthew 17, when He is speaking with Moses and Elijah, where He is shining through with the glory of the only begotten Son. 
and a cloud comes down and covers over him. Matthew 17, 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The overshadowing of the cloud marked God's enshrining of his glory in preparation for his full revealing in the future. We see this language as, as a bit of a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 when we see the Lord, Yahweh, seated on his throne, the Ancient of Days, and then the Son of Man coming in, riding on the clouds of heaven to receive an everlasting dominion, an eternal kingdom over all of creation. We see this as a further confirmation that Jesus is God in the flesh. That He receives the glory and praise and dominion that belongs only to the one true God. We see that it is the Lord Yahweh who makes the clouds His chariot. Psalm 104.3, Isaiah 19.1 That He rides on the clouds in glory and in judgment. And the disciples, they stand there amazed, as I'm sure we all would. I can't imagine what that sight must have been like. They continue to to look up into the clouds until these two angels appear next to them and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking at the clouds? I don't know if they expected Jesus to come right back down again or what they expected to see, but the angels say, you've got work to do. Don't worry about where the sun has gone. because One day you will see him again. Just as surely as the Son of Man has been lifted up in glory, riding the clouds of heaven, so surely shall the Son of Man return in glory, visibly and bodily, riding the clouds of heaven in judgment. This is the promise of God's messengers, the angels, to them, to assure them that He has not gone away for good, but He is faithful to His promise to return, and He will return in the same way that he has departed. Now we see here from this text the way that Christ, in accomplishing our salvation, both past and present and future, in his ascension and his current session and intercession, and one day at his glorious return. First, in the past, at his ascension, Jesus has now returned to the realm of his pre-incarnate glory. That Jesus, as the eternal Son, part of the triune God, as a a person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is due by nature all glory and power and dominion. That as eternal God of eternal God, of light of light, of true God of true God, He is due all glory and power and possesses those inherently within Himself by nature. But we also know that in time, the second person of the triune God, the Son became incarnate. And that in a mysterious fashion, in a great mystery, He took to Himself the form of a servant, assuming a human nature to Himself, assuming the form of a servant so that His humiliation may begin. That the eternal Son stepped down from the throne of glory on high, taking the form of a servant to Himself being born of a virgin and living in poverty and suffering all the weaknesses and infirmities and temptations of the flesh that all of us face, and yet endured them all without sin. 
but perfectly in his life, fulfilled the law of God for us, that in his righteousness we may be counted righteous as well by faith. That as he came down and down and down and through the levels of his humiliation, we see this in Philippians chapter 2, the way he assumed the form of a servant and humbled himself all the way down to the disgraceful death of a cross, to the point of his burial and descending to the dead, that he has gone all the way down for us. And he has done this in our humanity. He has taken our nature all the way down with him so that as he begins to ascend, he may take our humanity back up with him. That as our glorious two-natured Redeemer begins to ascend in exaltation back to realms of eternal glory, he may take our glorified humanity with him. That as surely as Christ has raised from the dead with a glorified body, so, so too surely shall we one day rise again bodily with him. He has taken our nature to heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father on high. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. But it raises several interesting questions. That, that heaven is a place where a physical body can go. Jesus didn't shove off our physical nature as he ascended into heaven. It didn't dissolve back into non-being. He took our humanity with him. That heaven is a place where physical beings can dwell. We see this as well in the Old Testament with Elijah, who was carried up on angelic chariots of fire. With Enoch, who walked with God and then was not. How exactly this works, I, I have no idea. But it it helps us to rethink the way that we think about heaven. We, we're prone to think of it as kind of just a, a place of pure spiritual existence that one day we go when we float around as these disembodied spirits like the old cartoons, little wings and halos and harps. But yet the Bible speaks of heaven as a place where human bodies can dwell. That heaven is not meant to be a specifically isolated spiritual place. It's meant to be a place where the physical and the spiritual can overlap and dwell in unity. That in a sense, the Garden of Eden was a place where God's presence, the heavenly presence of God, perfectly dwelt with humanity. And that we lost that in the fall. That as Adam failed and as Christ has succeeded, one day again, in a new heaven and new earth, the two shall be perfectly united again. And so heaven is, it's not necessarily a physical place you can locate with a compass and a map. I don't, I don't think you can go to certain GPS coordinates and find heaven. Jess and I have been recently watching a show called Percy Jackson. There were kids' books, kind of fiction, fantasy, based loosely on Greek mythology. And, and for them to go to, to heaven was to go to Mount Olympus, which you just had to ride the elevator on the Empire State Building. And to go to hell, you just had to find a cave in Los Angeles. I, I think that's a little ironic. But heaven is not a place where you can just go. 
It is the realm of heavenly glory, and it is only through God's redemptive work that we can have God's special presence reunited with us. And it raises another question. If Jesus is now bodily in heaven, how can it be that he's promised to be with us to the end of the age? The Heidelberg Catechism answers it helpfully, that Christ is very God and very man. With respect to his human nature, he's no longer with us on earth, but with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is no time ever absent with us. That Jesus, being God, in his divine nature, is omnipresent. He is always with us, and especially with us as his church, present by his spirit that as he promised the disciples, he would send his Holy Spirit, that by his Spirit, he may dwell within us forever. And that specially by his Spirit, he is with us as we gather as his people in the church. He is with us especially whenever we observe his sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the covenant sign and covenant meal where God feasts with his people. And especially in enacting church discipline, That in Matthew 18, when Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered, I am with them there, he speaks in the context of discipline. Where two or three witnesses have gathered to bring a charge against an unrepentant professing believer, Christ is there with them. That church discipline is something we should take very seriously because it's the discipline of the church that Christ is especially present at. So he is with us by his spirit and in his spirit dwelling within us. And also that he has gone, as he promised, to prepare a place for us. As he said in John 14 to his disciples in the upper room, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be with me also. That he now is presently seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he is building spiritually his kingdom. He is preparing a place for us. He is ruling and reigning as the exalted and throned Son And as our great high priest, he is currently interceding for us, his people. That Christ now has been enthroned as the climax of his exaltation, as the victorious Messiah. We see again from Philippians 2 that as he came all the way down, he has been lifted all the way up. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That right now Jesus sits enthroned, ruling and reigning over his spiritual kingdom, and at his return every knee will bow and confess his lordship. That he now sits enthroned, as true God and true man, as our perfect mediator, who in taking our humanity to itself knows what it feels like to suffer weakness and pain and loss, to suffer discouragement and temptation, 
that in his humanity he has been made like us, his brothers, in order that he may be the perfect redeemer of humanity. That he ever lives, lives to intercede for us. That he prays for us. Not as a, a distant deity far and untouchable above the heavens, but as a God who has come down in the flesh, who has felt the stains of our weakness, who has suffered the judgment of our sins. That is Hebrews 7 says that the former priests of the old covenant, they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. There was a, a line of priests, one after another after another, because they could never finish the job. But he holds our priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he should be such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Christ ever lives to pray for us, brothers and sisters. And if that isn't your greatest source of comfort, I don't know what would be. Uh, it's, been, it's been said, this illustration, I don't remember exactly where I heard it, but how encouraged and strengthened would you feel if you know that Jesus was in that back room praying for you? That if you could almost hear his prayers to the Father on your behalf, for your strength, for your perseverance, for your provision, how great of a comfort would that be? But brothers and sisters, the, dif the distance makes no difference. Whether in that room or seated in heaven on high, the Son prays for us. And even more than just interceding for us as a great high priest, He rules over us as the Son of David, the King seated on His throne. That Jesus reigns now over his kingdom. As he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. In his life and death and resurrection, he has already inaugurated and established his kingdom that will be fulfilled and consummated at his return. But even now, he has already begun to rule and reign with his saints. As he told them in Luke 22, to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as the Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That in Ephesians 2, it speaks of us having been redeemed by the blood of Christ, by grace through faith we have been saved. We have been raised up with him and have been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that he may for ages to come show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That already for us who have been united to Christ by faith, we have already been raised up and seated with him as he rules and reigns. This is a theme that we see throughout the New Testament, that the dead in Christ are those who have already been made alive. And in a sense, an important sense, they have already begun to reign with him. We see in Revelation 20, a debatable passage, I admit, but we see the picture that those who had not worshipped the enemy or his powers, but had been marked as the servants of Christ, who suffered for his sake and persevered to the end, they were those 
who came to life after death and reigned with Christ in his kingdom. They participated in the first resurrection. But there is a bodily resurrection for us yet to come, for us who believe. We confess that from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. He shall come once again. He will come, brothers and sisters. And that's an important note that this is yet future fulfillment, that he has not yet consummated all of that kingdom, has promised to be. He has not yet judged the nations in justice. He has not yet cast our enemies to the pits of hell forever. He has not yet saved us fully and finally to be with him forevermore. And this is important because it's a a false teaching, a dangerous heresy we see even in the first century that the Apostle Paul had to warn the churches of men like Hymenaeus who taught that the resurrection and return had already happened. That that Jesus' return was a a, a spiritual thing, not a bodily thing. That we don't know much about this, but we see this belief pop up in different forms through history. We see it in movements like Seventh-day Adventism, which teaches that Jesus did return spiritually in the 1800s, however that works. I have a lot of trouble reconciling that with what the Bible teaches about Christ's second coming. We see it in in notions of ideas like hyperpreterism, the idea that every prophecy about Christ's return has already taken place. All of that was, was just about Jerusalem being judged. And, you know, we're already kind of in the new heavens and new earth. Different views that distort and twist our blessed hope and rob us of the glories of the age to come. We must be on guard against any view that would twist the Scripture's teaching that Christ shall come again just as surely as He had departed. They saw Jesus visibly and bodily ascend on the clouds, and the angel said the same way He will return, visibly and bodily coming on the clouds. That is the second coming. So when shall this return? Well, we learn from the apostles already that it's not for us to know times and seasons. It's not for us to peek behind the curtain at God's secret timetable for history. Jesus does speak of signs of the times, of of the nature of the kingdom in this age, of many parables and, and stories that he told them. Consider Matthew chapter 13, the different parables of the way that the, kin, the kingdom continues to grow in, in unexpected ways, slowly but surely, with good and evil coexisting until the judgment at Christ's return. We see that he warns us that there will be wars and rumors of wars, that there will be famines and earthquakes and persecutions and false teachers, signs that have been present through the whole of this age, from the very first century. So we see signs, the things that happen that point us forward to his return, but yet none of us know the day or the hour. That as Jesus said in Luke 17, the Pharisees asked him when the kingdom of God would come, and he answered, the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom Christ was inaugurating in his first coming throughout this age is not one that comes in ways that we can perceive with our eyes. But yet... It will be consummated visibly in his return. As he says in 24, 
as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will be the Son of Man in His day. At the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus speaks of the coming judgment and the the fall of Jerusalem and many different issues for us to consider, He concludes by saying, The day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus speaks that, again, as true God and true man, he functions according to two natures. As eternal God, all-knowing, he knows truly and surely when the end shall come. But as man, he possesses limited knowledge and understanding. That none of us as humans has the right to know when that day shall be. And this is for our good, brothers and sisters. It's actually a good thing that we don't know the day that Jesus will return. Whether it's today or a thousand years from now, we are meant not to know that we would always be ready and expectant, that we would always be servants at our Master's work while He is away, that we would always be hopeful and prepared for the day that Jesus cracks the sky and comes again to rescue us. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes, Concerning times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. You yourselves know fully that the day will come like a thief in the night, with people saying there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, saints, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. Paul writes to two groups, to the believers, the children of the light, the faithful servants who will be awake and sober waiting for Christ's return, where it won't come in a surprise judgment that the thief in the night coming surprisingly, unexpectedly in judgment will come on those who do not believe. It's not something that we should ever be afraid of as believers, but it is something that should keep us awake and alert and urge us all the more to warn those who have yet to believe the gospel. How then shall Christ return? Christ will turn, as we see in this passage in many places elsewhere, visibly bodily, and triumphantly. Revelation 1-7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. Jesus will come, not invisibly, spiritually, secretly, but with a shout, with glory, that every eye would see Him. And all those under judgment would wail because they know that the end has come. And last, why shall Christ return? He shall come first to rescue his saints. He shall come to deliver us as people. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, would be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet him in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. He comes to rescue us and that we meet him in his triumphant procession 
we meet him and welcome him to come into the city as our victorious king. He comes again to judge the nations. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10 God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, marveled among all who believe because of our testimony to you was believed. He comes to defeat the final enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom to God our Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He comes to usher in a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth to dwell in eternal glory with his saints. So to summarize this in a word of application, we worship the ascended and exalted Christ, that we now join the heavenly choruses, the angels who sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, the I Am, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. We join with the saints already risen on high, with that innumerable multitude who sing the praises of the Lamb. And we remember that He, even now, is with us, His people. That He is with us, indwelling us by His Spirit. That He is with us spiritually every Lord's Day as we gather, especially to observe word and sacrament. He is with the church as it disciplines those who refuse to repent of their sin. So we call He calls us to lay our treasures not where moth and rust destroy. To lay up all of our hopes, all of our work and labors towards the glories that will never fade. To not put our ultimate hope or comfort or trust on anything of this world. But to cast our cares on the great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Brothers and sisters, take your comfort there. Not in any nation or kingdom but in the king who yet reigns, in the king who will return, in the king who even now is protecting you and sustaining you and persevering you. We also mourn with hope as we lay all the ones that we love into the ground. We don't mourn as those who are without hope, but we entrust our beloved departed to Christ, knowing that they now reign with him in glory. And that one day they shall be raised first. And us who are alive will, will see them and meet them in the air as we welcome Christ. That we must have this hope, brothers and sisters. That above all else, this must be our blessed hope. Um, to quote <laughs> a passage from Lord of the Rings. I try not to do it often, but sometimes it's inevitable that... Uh, that Gandalf and his companions as they faced certain death, he speaks to his friend, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path and one that we all must take. 
The gray rain curtains of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. White shores. And beyond, a far green country under a swift sunrise. Now that, again, is fantasy. That's, that's fiction and poetry, but it does point us to a far greater reality of our blessed hope. It also reminds us that we should beware the date setters. Anyone who thinks that they can discern the date and the hour, even though Jesus says we definitely can't, beware of those people, of those who write bestsellers like 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. You can probably see some reasons why that may be a flawed approach. Matthew Henry said, if, it makes us, if Christ would make us serviceable for this hour in our own day and generation, that's enough for us. Let us not perplex ourselves about times and seasons yet to come. So, brothers and sisters, remain awake and aware as good servants awaiting the return of their master. We'll close with this Heidelberg Catechism, number 49. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as our head, will also take us to be with himself, us, his members. Thirdly, that he sends us his Holy Spirit as an earnest, a down payment, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God and not the things of this earth. Take your comfort there, brothers and sisters. Place your hope in Christ who is yet to come. Would you pray with me? O God of grace and glory, the one who is and ones and who is to come, we praise you, Lord, and we ask with your church that you would come soon. Lord, come quickly. Amen. <laughs>